0: Welcome everyone to episode 11 of Curseland, Land, an anthology show about strange happenings, curious folk, and small towns. I'm your host and sole proprietor of Curseland, Land, which can be found at www.curse.land. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's get started. The sun is a giant, gleaming emu egg in the sky, and if you gaze long enough at the Milky Way, you can see the long body of an emu formed from the stars. The world's second largest bird after the ostrich, the emu, is native to Australia and has long been a source of mythical inspiration and sustenance for aboriginals. The big bird claims a place on Australia's coat of arms, stamps, and 50-cent coin, It even sparked a military deployment, the Great Emu War of 1932, when soldiers were sent to Western Australia to kill them and thereby save the farmers' crops. The emus won. This story is from TheEconomist.com. The Great Texas Emu Bubble From the 19th century, the three-toed bird started to spread its flightless wings and became a prized oddity in zoos worldwide. A century on, the emu was also seen as a potential source of red meat, a healthier version of beef. It was in this guise, as livestock, that the emu came to Texas in the 1980s. It did not end well for most of the emus, or most of their owners. Enthusiasm and emu-friendly regulations saw the price of a breeding pair of emus, just a few hundred dollars in the late 1980s, rise to a whopping $28,000 by 1993. The next year, it doubled again. The American Emu Association, an industry group, saw its membership rise 27-fold between 1988 and 1994 to 5,500 members, most of them in Texas. The rationale for bringing the emu to Texas was that Americans wanted healthier meat, that the state has a long history of raising cattle for slaughter, and that, heck, it was the 1980s and all sorts of weird stuff was happening. Some boosters also heralded the potential of ostriches, but emus won out over their ratite cousins. In its fundamentals, though, the Texas emu bubble of the 1990s was, like all investment bubbles, stoked by exuberance and greed. Men, it has been well said, think in herds, wrote Scottish journalist Charles McKay in 1841 in his book Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. Had Mr. McKay traveled to Lubbock or Midland a century and a half later, he would have believed that men think in mobs, as groups of emus are sometimes known. As in all bubbles, from 17th century Dutch tulip mania to 21st century bitcoin, word of the wonders of the emus spread by all the social networks available, from word of mouth to small ads in local papers. Their boosters were keen to point out that there was more to emus than steak. They provided oil for lotions, skin for leather, feathers for clothes, and enormous emerald eggs for four-person omelets. Best of all, in terms of inflating a bubble, emus provided you with more emus, and thus an incentive to spread the word yet further and sell emus on to other would-be ratite ranchers. The state government also played a role in helping the emu market take flight. Between 1992 and 1995, the Texas Department of Agriculture reportedly gave out $400,000 in loans to encourage emu ranching. The state also offers tax breaks to people who use their land for agricultural purposes, which is enough of an incentive for some people to find animals to graze on their property even if they have no intention of farming. Emus fitted the bill. And Texas law was, and is, extremely lax when it comes to the import of exotic animals. The state is believed to have more tigers living in captivity in backyards than exist in the wild worldwide. The new emu owners were not experienced investors or emu raisers. We were clueless. We had never even raised chickens, says Gina Taylor, who bought a pair of emus with her husband in 1995, soon after they moved from Dallas to a rural town called LaRue. They used a laundry basket with a heat lamp over it to incubate eggs in their kitchen. Such a rough-and-ready approach seems quite appropriate for emus, which are somewhat scruffy beasts. But even if not sleek, they do have some redeeming features. They need much less land to graze than cows. They are quieter, too, except during the breeding season, when the females make booming noises and males grunt. Though this was not necessarily a selling point in Texas, the birds have a powerfully proto-feminist attitude to the patriarchy. Females choose males rather than vice versa, sometimes going so far as to fight over them. Males take on the responsibility of incubating the eggs, refusing to leave the nest to eat or drink for weeks at a time, and then raising their chicks as single parents However, those who anticipated a life of gentle emu care and handsome profits found themselves disappointed. One challenge was that emus were not easy to handle. They are as tall as human beings, growing up to 190 centimeters, that's 6 feet 2 in freedom units, and easily weighing 55 kilograms, or 120 pounds. Being the only birds with calf muscles helps them sprint at up to 50 kilometers an hour, 30 miles an hour, prompting some dramatic high-speed chases when they escaped. They can also kick. A young Hispanic man who had crossed one came into an emergency room in Austin in the mid-1990s with bad cuts and bruises, shouting, Pollo Gigante! And raising the birds was not cheap. People plowed tens of thousands of dollars into it. The emus required fencing and feed. The most forward-thinking emu owners bought expensive equipment to microchip their flocks because emu rustling became a problem as values rose. So did emu fraud. Some retirees and speculators put their savings into emus that were sold to them but never delivered, sparking lawsuits over avian bonsai schemes. A few dozen restaurants in Texas briefly added emu to their menus, including Dunstan's, a popular steakhouse in Dallas, but consumers were hard to win over. EMU claims lower cholesterol and fat and higher iron, but it is more expensive than beef and less familiar. Small farmers never coordinated to get the distribution or quality control they needed to make it a profitable, large-scale enterprise. Even EMU enthusiasts did not make the meat a staple of their diets. We occasionally ate an EMU burger, but never ate any of our own, says Mrs. Taylor. As the hoped for demand failed to materialize, the supply continued to increase. Emus lay 5 to 15 eggs in each clutch and can keep doing so for more than 16 years. With 12 surviving chicks a year, a single breeding pair can spawn 133 breeding pairs within 5 years and nearly 36,000 within 10 years. The population boomed at precisely the moment it was becoming clear that Americans had no appetite for a new red meat. The bubble popped painfully. By 1998, emus were worthless. Rather than keep paying to feed them, many owners just abandoned them. Some farmers cut their own fences, hoping their emus would leave and become someone else's problem. When Parker County, west of Fort Worth, auctioned off 211 birds it had rounded up in 1998, they fetched only 2 to $4 each. You can sometimes find emu burgers at Twisted Root, a chain in Dallas, alongside elk burgers, but not that often. One result is that there are mobs of feral emus in parts of Texas, farm survivors and their descendants. Occasionally, they show up in small towns or nearly cause crashes as they cross country roads. Animal control officers and police struggle to catch them. When they do, they often have no way to transport them because they're too tall to fit into dog kennels. Your correspondent went to visit a female emu that had been successfully corralled and now resides at the Wildlife Rescue and Rehabilitation, a nonprofit center outside of San Antonio. This one is probably descended from a farm emu hatched back in the 1990s, but no one can be sure. Emus can live 30 years. She's been there for several years and spends her days walking the perimeter like a watchman, making constant rounds. Although she's shy and does not want to come close, even for a treat of a sweet pumpkin offered freely through the fence. She seems to know that humans are fickle and untrustworthy. The emus that were freed were the fortunate ones. Some despairing farmers simply stopped feeding them, starving them to death. Others shot them. Two brothers outside Fort Worth decided to eliminate their emus with baseball bats to the head. They had killed 22 of their hundred-strong mob before the police came, summoned by appalled neighbors. Some lobbied to charge the brothers with animal cruelty, but no charges were ultimately filed. Texas likes to think of itself as the wild, untamed West where man can do what he wants to do, to hell with who he's doing it to, explains Lynn Cuny, founder of Wildlife Rescue and Rehabilitation. Animals are viewed as property which people can discard or destroy like old pieces of furniture. The emu was not the last species to fall foul of human greed. Since the 1990s, many Texans have pinned their hope for riches on new animals, such as white-tailed deer and longhorn cattle. And just as Texans have not learned from their experience with emus, nor has the world, more recently India experienced its own emu boom, with farmers piling into raising the big birds. They made the same mistake Texans did by focusing on hatching new birds instead of creating demand for the meat. The market collapsed in 2013. From the human point of view... This is a tale of never learning. From the emus, it is adaptation in action. Every economic fiasco, an evolutionary opportunity. From the plains of Texas to the streets of India, emus are flapping those tiny wings they do not really have and making the most of wherever it is they find themselves. Let the wild emus roam. The Alaska Triangle, sometimes called Alaska's Bermuda Triangle, is a place in the untouched wilderness of the frontier state where mystery lingers and people go missing at a very high rate. This story is from LegendsofAmerica.com. It's called The Alaska Triangle, Disappearing Into Thin Air. And this story is by Kathy Weiser Alexander. The Alaska Triangle connects the state's largest city of Anchorage in the south to Juneau in the southeast panhandle to Barrow, a small town on the state's north coast. Here is some of North America's most unforgiving wilderness. The area began attracting public attention in October 1972 when a small private plane carrying U.S. House Majority Leader Hale Boggs, Alaska Congressman Nick Begich, and aide Russell Brown and their brush pilot, Don Johns, seemingly vanished into thin air while flying from Anchorage to Juneau. For more than a month, 50 civilian planes and 40 military aircraft, plus dozens of boats, covered a search area of 32,000 square miles, but no trace of the plane, the men, wreckage, or debris were ever found. Afterward, more planes went down, hikers went missing, and Alaskan residents and tourists seemed to vanish into thin air. In fact, since 1988, more than 16,000 people have disappeared in the Alaska Triangle with a missing person rate at more than twice the national average. In any given year, 500 to 2,000 people go missing in Alaska, never to be seen again. Authorities conduct hundreds of rescue missions, most often return without finding the missing person or any evidence at all. These disappearances are blamed on everything from severe weather to aliens, to swirling energy vortexes, to an evil shape-shifting demon of Tlingit Indian lore called Kushtaka. But the most likely explanation of these many missing people is the wilderness itself. Within this area are dense forests, craggy mountain peaks, massive glaciers, hidden caves, and deep crevices where downed aircraft or lost hikers might easily be hidden and then covered by snowfall hiding any trace of human activity. This harsh landscape is also filled with wild animals and is subject to unforgiving weather, including avalanches. More than half of the nation's federally designated wilderness lies in Alaska, and many of the permanent disappearances are linked to perilous natural elements. Alaska is bound by 33,000 miles of coastline, contains more than three million lakes, untamed wildlife, and winters that blanket vast reaches of the state in snow and ice. However, there are many that support the idea of energy vortexes within the triangle. Energy vortexes are thought to be swirling centers of energy concentrated in specific places where the energy crackles most intensely. The energy radiates in a spiraling cone shape, clockwise or counterclockwise, creating positive and negative effects. They're thought to affect humans in various physical, mental, and emotional ways. Positive vortexes spiral upward in a clockwise motion, creating an enhancing flow of energy. This type is said to be conducive to healing, meditation, creativity, and self-exploration. People actively search these places out to feel inspired, recharged, or uplifted. Some of the places where positive vortexes are said to exist are the Egyptian pyramids, Stonehenge, the Sedona Desert, and sacred temples and cathedrals throughout the world. Alternatively, negative vortexes spiral downward in a counterclockwise motion, creating a draining or depleting energy and depleting the positive energies in its vicinity. In humans, they are believed to cause health problems including depression, nightmares, disorientation, confusion, and both visual and audio hallucinations. They are also said to cause electrical instruments to malfunction. Some places that are said to be filled with negative vortexes are the Bermuda Triangle, Japan's Devil's Sea, and Easter Island. Electronic readings in Alaska have found large concentrations of magnetic anomalies, some of which have disrupted compasses to the point that they are as much as 30 degrees off. In addition, some search and rescue workers have reported having audio hallucinations, disorientation, and lightheadedness. It is unclear whether vortexes really exist, and the theory has been open to a good amount of skepticism. But is it possible? Despite the warnings from authorities regarding weather, wildlife, and environmental conditions, hundreds of tourists visit Alaska to see the unspoiled land, many of whom are unprepared for the natural elements. Some of these people probably become lost in the middle of nowhere, resulting in the numerous search and rescue operations performed each year. That, however, does not explain why there are more disappearances in the Alaska Triangle than elsewhere in the state. Whether the mysterious disappearances of the Alaska Triangle are the result of natural perils, strange energy vortexes, or ancient evil spirits, they are certainly alarming. And listeners, here's one more story from legendsofamerica.com. I found this site since the last episode was published, and there's quite a few stories on here that I thought would be of interest to listeners of this show. This one is also by Kathy Weiser Alexander. It's called Giants in West Virginia. In many of the ancient burial mounds of West Virginia, a number of giants were found in years past. Other large skeletons were found in the early days of coal mining, and more were found as people were excavating the ground for other purposes. One of the first reports of a giant occurred in 1774 when Jack Parsons was walking along the recently flooded Cheat River. When he noticed some bones protruding from the ground, he pulled a femur from the soil, and when he compared it to his own, it was seven inches longer. He then removed the rest of the bones and laid them out, estimating that it would have stood about eight feet tall. Other settlers also found gigantic skeletons in the area, which was soon dubbed Giant Town. In 1838, when amateurs excavated the Grave Creek Mound in present-day Moundsville, West Virginia, they were said to have found giant human skeletons inside that were as long as eight feet. In the 1850s, a root cellar was being dug in Palatine, East Fairmont, West Virginia. Here, workers uncovered two very large human skeletons, Said to have been more than seven feet tall. A number of people saw the skeletons, but that night the bones were stolen, assumed to be sold in the lucrative market of Indian relics which existed at that time. In 1857, the Western Literary Messenger reported that the skeleton of a giant had been found, stating A day or two since, some workmen engaged in subsoiling the grounds of Sheriff Wickham at his vineyard in East Wheeling came across a human skeleton. Although much decayed, there was little difficulty in identifying it by placing the bones, which could not have belonged to other than a human body, in their original position. The impression made from the skeleton itself was measured by the sheriff and a brother in the craft locale, both of whom were prepared to swear that it was ten feet, nine inches in length. Its jaws and teeth were almost as large as those of a horse. The bones are to be seen at the sheriff's office. In 1875, when workers were constructing a bridge near the mouth of Pawpaw Creek at Rivesville, they uncovered three giant skeletons with strands of reddish hair clinging to their skulls. A local doctor was called in to examine the remains, who determined that they were definitely human, and estimated the skeletons to be approximately eight feet tall. Afterward, with exposure to the air, the bones deteriorated rapidly." In 1882, amateur archaeologist F. M. Fetty and his wife were exploring an unusual rock formation along White Day Creek in Marion County when they found what appeared to be a shelter. On closer examination, they discovered that a false wall had been erected, and after removing several large stones, they found a very large ancient mummy sitting in a chair. The giant was surrounded by stone and flint artifacts. In the summer of 1883, James A. Faulkner unearthed an unusually large human skeleton in the same area. Dr. Samuel Kramer of Smithtown was called in and measured this skeleton, which was found to be 7 feet 4 inches long, and deduced that it belonged to a person who was almost 8 feet tall. That same year, the Smithsonian Institution dispatched a team of archaeologists to the Creel Mound in South Charleston. Led by Colonel Lewis Morris, the team conducted extensive digs of some 50 mounds in the area and issued a detailed report. In their investigation, the team uncovered numerous giants, one of which was 7 foot 6 inches tall and decorated with six heavy copper bracelets on each wrist and on his shoulder were three large plates of mica. In another mound, they found a circle of 10 skeletons surrounding a giant skeleton, as well as underground vaults, various copper and mica ornaments, jewelry, religious items, pipes and spearheads. Another large skeleton was also found that had a flathead-type skull. As more digs progressed in the coming years, archaeologists in Wheeling, West Virginia found another grouping of giants ranging in height from six foot seven to seven foot six which also displayed unusual skull formations with low foreheads and prominent backs of the skull. As similar discoveries were unearthed, the Charleston Daily Mail published an article in October 1922 that stated, One of the most interesting of the five state parks is Mound Park at Moundsville, from which that city derived its name. Probably no other relic of prehistoric origin has attracted as wide a study among archaeologists as the Grave Creek Mound, which has given up skeletons of the ancients who constructed it. Archaeologists investigating the mound some years ago dug out a skeleton said to be that of a female because of the formation of the bones. The skeleton was 7 feet 4 inches tall, and the jawbone would easily fit over the face of a man weighing 160 pounds. In June 1930, the Clarksburg Sunday Exponent reported, Interesting and valuable evidence of a race of gigantic people who inhabited this section of West Virginia more than 1,000 years ago have been exhumed from two newly explored mounds located near Morgansville, which is on the northwestern turnpike about 12 miles west of Salem. The particular tribe or race which inhabited this section of the state is believed to have been composed of individuals ranging from seven to nine feet in height, and it is thought they were Siouxan Indians. The best preserved skeleton found at Morgansville was in a clay encasement, and all of the vertebrae and other bones, excepting the skull, were saved without much crumbling. Careful measurement of the skeletons proved that the Indians were about seven feet six inches tall. This was in response to Professor Ernest Sutton, the head of the Geography Department at Salem College, having excavated two mounds in Doddridge County in which he uncovered four skeletons. The most recent discovery of these giants was made in 1959 when Dr. Donald Dragoo, the curator for the Section of Man at the Carnegie Museum, excavated the Cresap Mound in Marshall County. There he unearthed a 7 feet 2 inch skeleton Tales of colossal giants permeate American history, not only in West Virginia, but across the continent. These many finds in America, as well as the rest of the world, support the idea that giants once walked on Earth centuries ago, and are more than just mythological beings. If you look back on your life, you can probably point to a time or two when you were faced with a really tough decision. Had you chosen differently, your world would look very different right now. So it was for Confederate General Robert E. Lee, one of the most divisive figures in American history. To his fans, Lee was the hero of the Civil War, which explains why there are so many roads and schools named after him in the South. But to his critics... Lee was a traitor who fought to keep slavery legal. It turns out that Lee was just as conflicted as his legacy. Let's look at Lee's life through the scope of some of those choices to look at the impact they did have and are still having today. This story is from TodayIFoundOut.com The Difficult Decisions of Robert E. Lee Decision 1 Mathematics or military. Robert Edward Lee was born in 1807 to one of Virginia's most wealthy and respected families. When he was eighteen years old, he applied to West Point Military Academy in New York, which was expected of a young man of his social status. But late in life, he confided to a friend that attending a military college was among his greatest regrets. It may seem like an odd comment for the man who was venerated as a war hero. But as a boy, it was mathematics, not soldiering, that interested him. Robert was an intelligent child and could have studied to become a teacher, architect, or an engineer. But there was another factor in play. The once-proud family name had been tarnished. Two centuries earlier, a few years before the Pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock, Richard Lee I emigrated from England to begin a new life in what is now Virginia. That was Robert E. Lee's great-grandfather. Lee's grandfather was Colonel Henry Lee II, a prominent Virginia politician. And Lee's father, Henry Light Horse Harry Lee III, fought alongside George Washington in the Revolutionary War. In fact, at Washington's funeral in 1799, it was Harry Lee who famously described the late general and president as, First in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen. Harry Lee would go on to become Virginia's governor and then a U.S. congressman. But things turned sour for the family when Harry's poor financial habits and risky business ventures led to bankruptcy and a one-year stint in debtor's prison. A few years later, during the War of 1812, Harry was nearly beaten to death after defending a friend who opposed the war. He fled to the West Indies to heal, but it was more likely to escape his debts. He died before he could make it home. Honor thy father. With his father gone and his older brother away at Harvard, it was left to Robert to care for his invalid mother and help raise his younger siblings. His mother instilled in him a sense of honor, never letting him forget that he was born to a family that had produced a governor, a U.S. congressman, a U.S. senator, a U.S. attorney general, and four signers of the Declaration of Independence. Even so, the name Lee didn't have the clout it once did. So, one reason for Lee's application to West Point was to restore honor to his family. Another reason, it was much cheaper than Harvard. He nearly didn't get in because of his father's reputation, as by that point he had become known primarily as the man who once wrote George Washington a bad check. But Lee was accepted, and that's where his rise began. An exemplary student, Lee earned zero demerits in his four years there, which is almost unheard of at the strict military academy. In 1829, after graduating second in his class, his high marks earned him the rank of second lieutenant, the prestigious Army Corps of Engineers. He then married Mary Custis, the great-granddaughter of Martha Washington. That alone went a long way to restoring the Lee name. During the 1830s and early 40s, when the United States was at peace, Lee had the opportunity to put his math skills to work by fortifying the nation's borders. As a U.S. Army engineer, he helped map the line between Ohio and Michigan and was part of the team that rerouted the Mississippi River back toward St. Louis. Meanwhile, in Texas. A few years later, the United States went to war against Mexico over the annexation of Texas. Lee, now a captain, was dispatched there in 1847 to map routes over rough terrain that American soldiers could use to gain an advantage over the Mexicans. His tactical prowess led directly to winning several crucial victories and eventually the war, and it put Lee on the map as a rising star in the U.S. Army. His commander, General Winfield Scott, called him the very finest soldier I ever saw in the field. When Lee was given a speech to the troops during the Mexican-American War, one of the soldiers in attendance was Ulysses S. Grant, who admired Lee, When the war ended, the two men went their separate ways on either side of the Mason-Dixon line, which ran between Virginia and Maryland, and divided the nation between North and South. Little did they know their lives and their legacies would be forever linked. Decision 2. Capture Brown or wait it out. In 1859, Lieutenant Colonel Robert E. Lee and a squad of Marines were sent to Harper's Ferry, Virginia, to prevent a slave revolt. A group of 21 abolitionists, led by a 58-year-old white northerner named John Brown, had taken over a military arsenal. Their mission? Free every slave and kill their captors if they had to, which they had already done on a few occasions. At Harper's Ferry, Brown and his men captured several townspeople including George Washington's great-grandnephew, and held them as hostages. When Lee arrived, his main objective was to capture Brown, but he was also there to ensure the safety of any townspeople, black or white, who refused to side with Brown. After a tense standoff, Lee sent one of his commanders to approach the arsenal with a white flag. Brown was told that if he surrendered, none of his men's lives would be lost. No, replied Brown, I prefer to die here. That brought Lee to his next big decision. Should he send his men in to capture by force and perhaps even kill Brown, whom he described as a madman, but doing so, possibly turn Brown into a martyr in the north, which would further divide the already divided nation? Or should Lee cut off Brown's provisions and wait him out, in the hope that the revolt would fizzle? Lee chose to send in the troops. They captured Brown after a bloody firefight in which several people were killed, including two of Brown's sons, but no hostages. John Brown was convicted of murder, conspiracy to incite a slave uprising, and treason against the Commonwealth of Virginia. He was hanged for his crimes. Just as Lee had feared, Brown's death became a rallying cry for the North, though he was vilified as a murderer and a terrorist in the South. When Abraham Lincoln was elected president a year later on an anti-slavery platform, without winning a single state below the Mason-Dixon line. Many in the South saw that as the last straw. Slavery had been outlawed in the Northern states for several decades, and most Southerners could see no other choice than to fight the Northern aggression or lose their way of life. War was looming. Decision 3. Which side should I fight for? Next came the most difficult decision of Lee's life. He was both a proud American and a proud Virginian. Today, it's accepted that the federal government is responsible for setting the national agenda with regard to laws, taxation, education, and more. In the 19th century, Washington, D.C. had a lot less direct oversight over people's lives. The states made their own laws, including laws relating to slavery. Like most Americans of his generation, Lee's loyalty was to his state first and his country second. That didn't mean he wasn't alarmed when several southern states, South Carolina, Alabama, Georgia, Texas, and Louisiana, seceded from the Union after Lincoln was elected. Lee feared that Virginia's leaders would follow suit, and he thought it was a major overreaction to the problem, stating, "...I do not believe in secession as a constitutional right, nor that there is sufficient cause for revolution." But after Virginia's lawmakers voted by a narrow margin to secede in April 1861 and join the newly formed Confederate States of America, Lee suddenly found himself as a man without a country. He didn't want to fight for either side. He sought the counsel of General Scott, director of the Confederacy's War Department. Scott's advice, you cannot sit out the war. The situation became even more complicated after President Lincoln an admirer of Lee, offered him the chance to lead the Union army in war. Lee had to think about it for a few days. He ultimately confided, I look upon secession as anarchy. If I owned the four millions of slaves in the South, I would sacrifice them all to the Union. But how can I draw my sword upon Virginia, my native state? Sacrifice. So, when it came down to choosing between the North and the South, Lee chose neither. He chose Virginia. Turning down Lincoln's offer, he resigned his commission with the U.S. Army after serving with distinction for 32 years. A few weeks later, Lee accepted Confederate President Jefferson Davis's offer to serve in the Army of Northern Virginia, the first line of defense against invading Union soldiers. Within a year, Lee would be in charge of the entire Confederate military. History buffs can only speculate about what would have transpired had Lee accepted Lincoln's offer, but it's hard to imagine a worse fate than a war that killed more than 620,000 people. In his 2014 book, A Disease in the Public Mind, historian Thomas Fleming theorizes that the outcome would have been much better. General Lee would have remained in command of the Union Army, ready to extinguish any and all flickers of revolt. By expertly mingling his troops so that southern and northern regiments served in the same brigades, he would have forged a new sense of brotherhood in and around the word union. At the end of President Lincoln's second term, it seems more than likely that the American people would have elected Robert E. Lee as his successor. Decision 4. Follow orders or follow my heart. But that didn't happen. And four years later, the Confederacy had all but lost the Civil War, and Lee knew it. After some early successes in driving off invading Union troops, which earned him a lot of respect on both sides, Lee lost both of his major incursions into the North at the Battles of Antietam and Gettysburg, two of the bloodiest of the war. Lee, now in his mid-fifties, was suffering from heart problems that kept him sidelined for weeks at a time. After Gettysburg, he even tried to resign his commission, but President Davis talked him out of it. Yet, despite the losses, the Confederate soldiers still looked up to him. Why? Unlike many commanders who traveled with servants and slept on soft beds, Lee chose to be with his troops, both on and off the battlefield. Lee biographer Peter S. Carmichael wrote that the soldiers had extraordinary confidence in their leader, extraordinary high morale, a belief they couldn't be conquered. But at the same time, it was an army that was being worn down. Lee was pushing these men beyond the logistical capacity of that army. As the South ran low on supplies and the desertion rate among Confederate soldiers increased, Lee proposed a radical plan train the slaves to fight. That idea did not go down well. The proposition to make soldiers out of our slaves is the most pernicious idea that has been suggested since the war began, complained Georgia Governor Howell Cobb. The day you make a soldier of them is the beginning of the end of the revolution, and if slaves seem good soldiers, then our whole theory of slavery is wrong. President Davis agreed with Cobb, and Lee's request was denied. Lee told Davis there was only one option left. Surrender to the North so no more lives would be lost fighting for a losing cause. Davis wasn't ready to give up, though. He ordered Lee to keep the war going by using guerrilla tactics, sending small squads into northern strongholds to fight hand-to-hand if necessary. Knowing that a guerrilla war could go on for years, Lee found himself in yet another difficult position. Should he follow the orders of his commander-in-chief or do what he thought was right? On April 9, 1865, with his troops heavily outnumbered in the town of Appomattox Courthouse, Virginia, Lee knew it was time. I suppose there is nothing for me to do but go and see General Grant, he said, and I would rather die a thousand deaths. The two generals held an official ceremony in which Lee surrendered and the Civil War was over. Decision 5. Retire in Peace or Work for Peace When Lee chose to align himself with Davis, not Lincoln, he was effectively renouncing his U.S. citizenship. So when the war ended, he was a man without a country. He couldn't vote. Much of his land had been seized in the war, including his home, the Custis Lee Mansion, which is now Arlington National Cemetery, and he was nearly broke. According to South Carolina writer Mary Chestnut in Civil War Diaries, right after the war, she overheard Lee telling a friend, that he only wanted a Virginia farm, no end of cream and fresh butter and fried chicken. But as much as he yearned for a quiet life, Lee's sense of duty brought him to the White House to publicly advocate for Reconstruction. That made him, according to Civil War scholar Emory Thomas, an icon of reconciliation between the North and South. Back to School For Lee's final act, he saved a school, Washington College, located in Lexington, Virginia, had been left in tatters after the war. Five months after the surrender at Appomattox Courthouse in September 1865, Lee was offered the job as the school's president. The use of his name, which was still hallowed in the South, would be a boon to any institution, and he reportedly turned down several other, more lucrative positions that would have capitalized on his name. Lee agreed to take the job in part because of his respect for George Washington, for whom the school was named, but also because he believed that an educated populace would be less likely to wage war. It is well that war is so terrible, he once said. We should grow too fond of it. Under Lee's leadership, Washington College grew from a small Latin school to a university that offered students, just white males at the time, the opportunity to major in journalism, engineering, finance, and law. He fused those with the liberal arts, which was almost unheard of at the time. He even recruited northerners to become part of the student body in yet another effort to heal a broken nation. The students fairly worshipped him and deeply dreaded his displeasure, wrote one of the professors, yet so kind, affable, and gentle was he toward them that all loved to approach him. The school, now known as Washington and Lee University, is still going strong today. Now, fully integrated with women and African Americans, though it took until the 1970s for that process to become complete, the school has produced four U.S. Supreme Court justices, 27 U.S. Senators, 67 members of the House of Representatives, 31 state governors, a Nobel Prize laureate, several Pulitzer Prize, Tony Award, and Emmy Award winners and many more government officials, judges, business leaders, entertainers, and athletes. Fittingly, the university adopted Lee's family motto, Non Incatus Futuri, which means, not unmindful of the future. But Lee only had a chance to serve as the school's president for a short time. In 1870, just five years after the Civil War ended, he suffered a stroke and died. A legacy divided. The debate continues to this day was Robert e. Lee a hero or a traitor? Although he was considered a war hero in the South, his peacetime promotion of reconciliation earned him accolades in the North. Shortly after the Civil War ended, Lee granted an interview to the New York Herald in which he condemned the assassination of President Lincoln as deplorable, said he rejoiced at the end of slavery, and referred to the North and the South as we. The Herald praised Lee's efforts to reunite the nation. Here in the North, we have claimed him as one of ourselves. That sentiment was echoed by most American newspapers after Lee died in 1870, but not all of them. The editor of the new national era, noted abolitionist and former slave, the great Frederick Douglass, wrote a scathing editorial. We can scarcely take up a newspaper that is not filled with nauseating flatteries of the late Robert E. Lee, is it not about time that this bombastic laudation of the rebel chief should cease? But the adulation would only increase as the nation slowly healed from the wounds of the Civil War, and Jim Crow segregation laws became the norm in both the North and the South for another century. Lee's legacy has been tied to U.S. race relations ever since. Lee and Slavery Like most wealthy white men in pre-Civil War America, including George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and even Ulysses S. Grant, Lee was a slave owner, but his own views on slavery were conflicted. In 1856, he wrote, There are few, I believe, in this enlightened age who will not acknowledge that slavery as an institution is a moral and political evil, It is idle to expatiate on its disadvantages. I think it is a greater evil to the white man than to the colored race. While my feelings are strongly enlisted in behalf of the latter, my sympathies are more deeply engaged for the former. The blacks are immeasurably better off here than in Africa, morally, physically, and socially. The painful discipline they are undergoing is necessary for their further instruction as a race and will prepare them, I hope, for better things. Lee even went so far as to advocate for the education of slaves, saying it would be better for the blacks and for the whites. But he was not in favor of granting them the right to vote and even said that if the slaves were freed, I think it would be better for Virginia if she could get rid of them. A deeply religious man, in Lee's view, slavery could only be ended by God. The Man and the Mythology Despite Lee's views on slavery, his posthumous star kept rising. That began in earnest in 1871, the year after he died, with a biography called The Life of General Robert E. Lee, by John Cook, a former Confederate soldier who served under Lee. Glossing over Confederate losses at Antietam and Gettysburg as having hastened the end of the war, Cook focused on the lost cause belief that pervaded the South in the late 19th century. It downplayed slavery as the main cause of the Civil War, and instead promoted the idea that the war was an honorable, heroic struggle fought in defense of the Southern way of life and against Union attempts to disrupt it. And it was Lee, Cook wrote, who kept the South united. The crown and grace of this man, who was thus not only great, but good, was the humanity and trust in God which lay at the foundation of his character. Hundreds of Lee biographies have been published since then, most of them painting the same rosy picture. For example, John Perry's 2010 biography, Lee, A Life of Virtue, describes Lee as a passionate patriot, caring son, devoted husband, doting father, don't tread on me, Virginian, God-fearing Christian. Perry wrote that the real Lee was a caring man, who considered it a special honor to push his invalid wife in her wheelchair. During the war, he picked wildflowers between battles and pressed them into letters to his family. He once described two dozen little girls dressed in white at a birthday party as the most beautiful thing he ever saw. Of course, today, if a military leader were to defect from the United States and then lead a foreign army back into it, he would almost certainly be tried for treason and executed. But several former presidents, on both sides of the political spectrum, didn't view Lee in that light. President Theodore Roosevelt said that the two greatest Americans of all time were George Washington and Robert E. Lee. Lee was one of the noblest Americans who ever lived and one of the greatest captains known to the annals of war. Roosevelt's cousin, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, called Lee, one of our greatest American Christians and one of our greatest American gentlemen. President Woodrow Wilson, the first Southerner elected to the White House after the Civil War, wrote a biography praising Lee. He often told of his experience as a 13-year-old boy shortly after the war in Augustus, Georgia, when he had the opportunity to stand next to Lee during a procession. After President Dwight D. Eisenhower was criticized for hanging a portrait of General Lee in the White House, he replied, From deep conviction, I simply say this, A nation of men of Lee's caliber would be unconquerable in spirit and soul. In 1975, a few years after a letter written by Lee to President Andrew Johnson requesting amnesty was discovered, President Gerald Ford finally restored Lee's full U.S. citizenship. At the ceremony, he said, General Lee's character has been an example to succeeding generations, making the restoration of his citizenship an event in which every American can take pride. In 2009, President Barack Obama spoke at the annual dinner of the Alfalfa Club, which was founded in 1913 in honor of Lee, who, it turns out, is a distant relative of Obama's, Noting the irony that Lee didn't think African Americans should be allowed to vote or hold office, Obama said, I know many of you are aware that this dinner began almost a hundred years ago as a way to celebrate the birthday of General Robert E. Lee. If he were here with us tonight, the general would be 202 years old and very confused. On the other hand, Indeed, a lot of Americans in the 21st century are confused as to why Lee is still glorified. Why is it so hard for people to just say Robert E. Lee fought for a despicable cause and doesn't deserve our admiration? Asked Slate Magazine's chief political correspondent, Jamel Buey. Washington Post columnist Richard Cohen wrote, It has taken a while, but it's about time Robert E. Lee lost the Civil War. The South, of course, was defeated on the battlefield in 1865, Yet the Lee legend, swaddled in myth, kitsch, and racism, has endured even past the civil rights era when it became both urgent and right to finally tell the lost cause to get lost. Now it should be Lee's turn. He was loyal to slavery and disloyal to his country, not worthy, even he might now admit, of the honors accorded to him. The More Things Change That's one reason why so many schools and highways named after Lee have been renamed after prominent African-Americans, but not all of them are being renamed. In 2015, after calls for the removal of the Confederate flag from southern state houses following a tragic church shooting by a white supremacist in South Carolina, a petition was started at Robert E. Lee High School in Staunton, Virginia to change its name. The petition was met with strong opposition. In an official protest letter from students and alumni, they wrote, We support the decision by South Carolina and other states to lower the Confederate flag, a symbol of bigotry and bias for many. But erasing Robert E. Lee's name from the school is political correctness run amok and an act of historical vandalism. The name wasn't changed that time, but it's safe to say the battle isn't over yet. We'll give the final word to Ulysses S. Grant, the general-turned-president who admired and then defeated Lee in the Civil War. In his memoir, he wrote about Lee's surrender at Appomattox. I felt like anything rather than rejoicing at the downfall of a foe who had fought so long and so valiantly, and had suffered so much for a cause, though that cause was, I believe, one of the worst for which a people ever fought, and one for which there was the least excuse. Take a look at that hulking sepulcher over there. Small wonder, they call it a tomb. It's the Citadel of Skull and Bones, the most powerful of all secret societies in the strange Yale secret society system. For nearly a century and a half, Skull and Bones has been the most influential secret society in the nation, and now it is one of the last. In an age in which it seems that all could possibly be concealed about anything and anybody has been revealed, those blank tombstone walls could be holding the last secrets left in America. This story is entitled The Last Secrets of the Skull and Bones. And this is by Ron Rosenbaum. It's from the September 1977 issue of Esquire. You could ask Averell Harriman whether there's really a sarcophagus in the basement, and whether he and young Henry Stimson and young Henry Luce lay down naked in that coffin and spilled the secrets of their adolescent sex lives to 14 fellow bonesmen. You could ask Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart if there came a time in the year 1937 when he dressed up in a skeleton suit and howled wildly at an initiate in a red velvet room inside the tomb. You could ask McGeorge Bundy if he wrestled naked in a mud pile as part of his initiation and how it compared with a later quagmire into which he so eagerly plunged. You could ask Bill Bundy or Bill Buckley, both of whom went into the CIA after leaving Bones, or George Bush, who ran the CIA, whether their skull and bones experience was useful training for the clandestine trade. Spook, the Yale slang word for secret society member, is, of course, agency slang for spy. You could ask J. Richardson Dilworth, the Bonesman who now manages the Rockefeller Fortune, just how wealthy the Bones Society is and whether it's true that each new initiate gets a no-strings gift of $15,000 cash and guaranteed financial security for life. You could ask, but I think you get the idea. The leading lights of the eastern establishment in old-line investment banks, in blue-blood law firms, and particularly in the highest councils of the foreign policy establishment The people who have shaped America's national character since it ceased being an undergraduate power had their undergraduate character shaped in that crypt over there. Bonesman Henry Stimson, Secretary of War under FDR, a man at the heart of the heart of the American ruling class, called his experience in the tomb the most profound one in his entire education. But none of them will tell you a thing about it. They've sworn an oath never to reveal what goes on inside, and they're legendary for the lengths to which they'll go to avoid prying interrogation. The mere mention of the words skull and bones in the presence of a true blue bonesman such as Blackford Oaks, the fictional hero of Bill Buckley's spy thriller, Saving the Queen, will cause him to dutifully leave the room as tradition prescribes. I can trace my personal fascination with the mysterious goings-on in the sepulchre across the street to a spooky scene I witnessed on its shadowy steps late one April night, eleven years ago. I was then a sophomore at Yale, living in Jonathan Edwards, the residential college, Anglophile Yale name for dorm, built next to the Bones tomb. It was part of Jonathan Edwards folklore that on the April evening following tap night at Bones. If one could climb to the tower of Weir Hall, the odd castle that overlooks the Bones' courtyard, one could hear strange cries and moans coming from the bowels of the tomb as the fifteen newly tapped members were put through what sounded like a harrowing ordeal. Returning alone to my room late at night, I would always cross the street rather than walk the sidewalk that passed right in front of Bones'. Even at that safe distance, something about it made my skin crawl. But that night in April, I wasn't alone. A classmate and I were coming back from an all-night diner at about two in the morning. At the time, I knew little about the mysteries of Bones or of any of the other huge, windowless, secret society tombs that dominated with dark authority certain key corners of the campus. They were nothing like conventional fraternities. No one lived in the tombs. Instead, every Thursday and Sunday night, the best and brightest on campus, the 15 seniors in Skull and Bones and in Scroll and Key, Book and Snake, Wolf's Head, Berzelius, and all the seven secret societies disappeared into their respective tombs and spent hours doing something, something they were sworn to secrecy about. And Bones, it was said, was the most ritualistic and secretive of all. Even the very door to the Bones tomb, that huge triple padlocked iron door, was never permitted to open in the presence of an outsider. All this was floating through my impressionable sophomore mind that night as my friend Mike and I approached the stone pylons guarding the entrance to Bones. Suddenly we froze at the sight of a strange thing lying upon the steps. There, in the gloom of the doorway, on the top step, was a long white object that looked like the thigh bone of a large mammal. I remained frozen. Mike was more venturesome. He walked right up the steps and picked up the bone. I wanted to get out of there fast. I was certain we were being spied upon from a concealed window. Mike couldn't decide what to do with the bone. He went up to the door and began examining the array of padlocks. Suddenly, a bolt shot. The massive door began to swing open, and something reached out at him from within. He gasped, terrified, and jumped back, but not before something clutched the bone, yanked it out of his hand, and back into the darkness within. The door slammed shut with a clang that rang in our ears as we ran away. Recollected in tranquility, that dreamlike, gothic moment seems to me an emblem of the strangeness I felt being at Yale, at being given a brief glimpse of the mysterious workings of the inner temples of privilege, but feeling emphatically shut out of the secret ceremonies within, the real purpose of which was, from its missionary beginnings, devoted to converting the idle progeny of the ruling class into morally serious leaders of the establishment. It is frequently in the tombs that these conversions take place. Yale itself was a secret society to me, skull and bones the secret within the secret. November 1976, Security Measures And we're back in front of the tomb, Mike and I, reinforced by nine years in the outside world. Two skeptical women friends and a big dinner at Maury's. And yet, once again, there is an odd, chilling encounter. We're recreating that first spooky moment. I'm standing in front of the stone pylons and Mike has walked up to stand against the door so we can estimate its height by his. Then we notice we're being watched. A small red foreign car has pulled up on the sidewalk a few yards away from us. The driver has been sitting with the engine running and has been watching us for some time. Then he gets out. He's a tall, athletic-looking guy, fairly young. He shuts the car door behind him and stands, leaning against it, continuing to observe us. We try to act oblivious, continuing to sketch and measure. The guy finally walks over to us. You seen Miles, he asks. We look at each other. Could he think we're actually Bones alumni, or is he testing us? Could you seen Miles be some sort of password? No, we reply. Haven't seen Miles. He nods and remains there. We decide we've done enough sketching and measuring and stroll off. Look, one of the women says as she turns and points back. He just ran down the side steps to check the basement door locks. He probably thought he caught us planning a break-in. I found the episode intriguing. What it said to me was that Bones still cared about the security of its secrets. Trying to find out what goes on inside could be a challenge. And so it was that I set out this April to see just how secure those last secrets are. It was a task I took on, not out of malice or sour grapes... I was not tapped for a secret society, so I'm open to the latter charge, but I plead guilty only to the voyeurism of a mystery lover. I thought it wouldn't hurt to spend some time in New Haven during the week of tap night and initiation night, poking around and asking questions. You could call it espionage if you were so inclined, but I tried to play the game in a gentlemanly fashion. I would not directly ask a bonesman to violate his sacred oath of secrecy. If, however, one of them happened to have fudged on the oath to some other party, and that other party were to convey the gist of the information to me, I would rule it fair game. And if any bonesman wants to step forward and add something, I'll be happy to listen. What follows is an account of my research for the meaning behind the mysterious bones rituals. Only information that might be too easily traced to its source has been left out, because certain sources expressed fear of reprisals against themselves. Yes, reprisals. One of them even insisted, with what seemed like deadly seriousness, that reprisals would be taken against me. What bank do you have your checking account at? This party asked me in the middle of a discussion of the Mithraic aspects of the bones ritual. I named the bank. Aha, said the party. There are three bonesmen on the board. You'll never have a line of credit again. They'll tap your phone. They'll... Before I could say, a line of what? The source continued. The alumni still care. Don't laugh. They don't like people tampering and prying. The power of bones is incredible. They've got their hands on every lever of power in the country. You see, it's like trying to look into the mafia. Remember, they're a secret society too. Wednesday night... April 14th. The Dossier Already, I have in my possession a set of annotated floor plans of the interior of the tomb, giving the location of the Sanctum Sanctorum, the room called 322, and tonight I received a dossier on Bones' ritual secrets that was compiled from the archives of another secret society. It seems that one abiding preoccupation of many Yale secret societies is keeping files on the secrets of other secret societies, particularly Bones. The dossier on Bones is a particularly sophisticated one, featuring reliability ratings and percentiles for each chunk of information. It was obtained for me by an enterprising researcher on the condition that I keep secret the name of the secret society that supplied it. Okay. I will say, though... That it's not the secret society that is rumored to have Hitler's silverware in its archives. That's Scroll and Key, chief rival of Bones for the elite of Yale, Dean Atchison, James Angleton, and Cy Vance's society, among other luminaries of the American foreign policy establishment. But to return to the dossier, let me tell you what it says about the initiation, the center of some of the most lurid, apocryphal rumors about Bones. According to the dossier, the bones initiation ritual of 1940 went like this. New man placed in coffin, carried into central part of building. New man chanted over and reborn into society, removed from coffin and given robes with symbols on it. A bone with his name on it is tossed into the bone heap at start of every meeting. Initiates plunged naked into mud pile. Thursday Evening THE FILE AND CLAW SOLUTION TO THE MYSTERY OF 322 I'm standing in the shadows across the street from the tomb, ready to tail the first person to come out. Tonight is tap night, the night fifteen juniors will be chosen to receive the hundred and forty-five year old secrets of bones. Tonight, the fifteen seniors in bones and the fifteen in each of the other societies will arrive outside the rooms of the prospective tappees. They'll pound loudly on the doors. When the chosen junior opens up, a bonesman will slap him on the shoulder and thunder, Skull and Bones, do you accept? At that point, according to my dossier, if the candidate accepts, he will be handed a message wrapped in a black ribbon, sealed in black wax, with the Skull and Crossbones emblem and the Mystic Bones number, 322. The message appoints a time and place for the candidate to appear on initiation night. Next Thursday... The first time, the newly tapped candidate will be permitted inside the tomb. Candidates are instructed to wear no metal to the initiation, the dossier notes ominously. Reliability rating for this stated to be 100%. Not long before 8 tonight, the door to Bones swings open. Two dark-suited young men emerge. One of them carries a slim black attaché case. Obviously, they're on their way to tap someone. I decide to follow them. I want to check out a story I heard that Bones initiates are taken to a ceremony somewhere near the campus before the big initiation inside the tomb. The Bonesmen head up High Street and pass the library, then make a right. Passing the library, I can't help but recoil when I think of the embarrassing discovery I made in the manuscript room this afternoon. The last thing I wanted to do was reduce the subtleties of the social function of Bones to some simple-minded conspiracy theory and yet I do seem to have come across definite, if skeletal, links between the origins of bones rituals and those of the notorious Bavarian Illuminists. For me, an interested but skeptical student of the conspiracy world, introduction of the Illuminists, or Illuminati, into certain discussions, say, for instance, of events in Dallas in 1963, has become the same thing that the mention of bones is to a bonesman, a signal to leave the room. Because although the Bavarian Illuminists did have a real historical existence from 1776 to 1785, they were an esoteric secret society within the more mystical, free thinking lodges of German Freemasonry, they have also had a paranoid fantasy existence throughout two centuries of conspiracy literature. They are the imagined mega cabal that manipulated such alleged plots as the French and Russian revolutions the Elders of Zion, the rise of Hitler, and the House of Morgan. Yes, the Bilderberg and George de Morgenship too, silly as it may sound. There are suggestive links between the historical, if not mytho-conspiratorial, Illuminists and Bones. First, consider the account of the origins of Bones to be found in a century-old pamphlet published by an anonymous group that called itself file and claw after the tools they used to pry their way inside bones late one night i came upon the file and claw break-in pamphlet in a box of disintegrating documents filed in the library's manuscript room under skull and bones's corporate name russell trust association the foundation was named for william h later general russell the man who founded bones in 1832 I was trying to figure out what mission Russell had for the secret order he founded, and why he had chosen that particular Death's Head brand of mumbo-jumbo to embody his vision. Well, according to the File and Claw break-in crew, Bones is a chapter of a corps of a German university. It should properly be called the Skull and Bones chapter. General Russell, its founder, was in Germany before his senior year and formed a warm friendship with a leading member of a German society. The meaning of the permanent number 322 in all Bones literature is that it was founded in 32 as the second chapter of the German society. But the Bonesman has a pleasing fiction that his fraternity is a descendant of an old Greek patriot society founded by Demosthenes who died in 322 BC. They go on to describe a German slogan painted on the arched walls above the vault of the sacred room 322. The slogan appears above a painting of skulls surrounded by Masonic symbols, a picture said to be a gift of the German chapter. Ver war der Thor, ver weiser, bedler, o der Kaiser, ob arm, ob reich, im todig the slogan reads, or who was the fool, who the wise man, beggar or king? Whether poor or rich, All the same in death. Imagine my surprise when I ran into that very slogan in a 1798 Scottish anti-illuminist tract reprinted in 1967 by the John Birch Society. The tract, Proofs of a Conspiracy, by John Robison, prints alleged excerpts from the Illuminist ritual manuals supposedly confiscated by the Bavarian police when the Secret Order was banned in 1785. Toward the end of the ceremony of initiation, into the regent degree of Illuminism, according to the tract, a skeleton is pointed out to him, the initiate, at the feet of which are laid a crown and a sword. He is asked whether that is the skeleton of a king, nobleman, or a beggar. As he cannot decide, the president of the meeting says to him, The character of being a man is the only one that is of importance. Doesn't that sound similar to the German slogan the file and claw team claims to have found inside bones? Now consider a haunting photograph of the altar room of one of the Masonic lodges at Nuremberg that is closely associated with Illuminism. Haunting because at the altar room's center approached through an aisle of hanging human skeletons is a coffin surrounded by, you guessed it, a skull and crossbones that look exactly like the particular arrangement of jaw bones and thigh bones in the official bones emblem. The skull and crossbones was the official crest of another key Illuminist lodge, one right-wing Illuminist theoretician told me. Now, you can look at this three ways. One possibility is that the Bircher right and the conspiracy-minded left are correct. The Eastern Establishment is the demonic creation of a clandestine elite manipulating history and Skull and Bones is one of its recruiting centers. A more plausible explanation is that the death's head symbolism was so prevalent in Germany when the impressionable young Russell visited that he just stumbled on the same motherload of pseudo-Masonic mummery as the Illuminists. The third possibility is that the break-in pamphlets are an elaborate fraud designed by the file and claw crew to pin the taint of Illuminism on Bones, and that the rituals of Bones have innocent Athenian themes, 322 being only the date of the death of Demosthenes. I'm still following the dark-suited Bonesmen at a discreet distance as they make their way along Prospect Street and into a narrow alley, which, to my dismay, turns into a parking lot. They get into a car and drive off, obviously to tap that off-campus Prospect. So much for tonight's clandestine work. I'd never get to my car in time to follow him. My heart isn't in it anyway. I'm due to head off to the graveyard to watch the initiation ceremony of Book and Snake, the secret society of Deep Throat's friend, Bob Woodward. And later tonight, I hope to make the first of my contacts with the persons who have been inside, not just inside the tomb, but inside the skulls of some of the bonesmen. Later Thursday night, turning the tables on the sexual autobiographies, In his senior year, each member of Bones goes through an intense, two-part confessional experience in the Bones crypt. One Thursday night, he tells his life story, giving what is meant to be a painfully forthright autobiography that exposes his traumas, shames, and dreams. Tom Wolfe calls this Bones practice a forerunner of the me-decades fascination with itself. The following Sunday night session is devoted exclusively to sexual histories, They don't leave out anything these days. I don't know what it was like in General Russell's day. Maybe there was less to talk about. But these days, the sexual stuff is totally explicit, and there's less need for fabricating exploits to fill up the allotted time. Most Sunday night sessions start with talk of prep school masturbation and don't stop until the intimate details of Saturday night's delights have come to light early Monday morning. This has begun to cause some disruptions in relationships. The women the Bonesmen talk about in the crypt are often Yale co-eds and frequently feminists. None of these women is too pleased at having the most intimate secrets of her relationship made the subject of an all-night symposium consecrating her lover's brotherhood with 14 males she hardly knows. As one woman put it, "'I objected to 14 guys knowing whether I was a good lay,' It was like after that, each of them thought I was his woman in some way. Some women have discovered that their lovers take their vows to Bones more solemnly than their commitments to women. There is the case of the woman who revealed something very personal, not embarrassing, just private, to her lover and made him swear never to repeat it to another human. When he came back from the Bones crypt, after his Sunday night sex session, he couldn't meet her eyes. He'd told his brothers in Bones. It seems that the whole secret society system at Yale is in the terminal stages of a sexual crisis. By the time I arrived this April, all but three of the formerly all-male societies had gone co-ed, and two of the remaining holdouts, Scroll and Key and Wolf's Head, were embroiled in bitter battles over certain members' attempts to have them follow the trend. The popular quarterback of the football team had resigned from scroll and key because its alumni would not even let him make a pro-co-education plea to their convocation. When one prominent alumnus of Wolf's Head was told the current members had plans to tap women, he threatened to raise the building before permitting it. Nevertheless, it seemed as though it wouldn't be long before those two holdouts went co-ed. But not Bones. Both alumni and outsiders see the essence of the Bones experience as some kind of male bonding, a Victorian, muscular, Christian missionary view of manliness and public service. While changing the least of all the societies over its 145 years, Bones did begin admitting Jews in the early 50s and tapping blacks in 1949. It offered membership to some of the most outspoken rebels of the late 60s and more recently added gay and bisexual members including the president of the militant Gay Activist Alliance, a man by the name of Miles. But women, the Bones alumni have strenuously insisted, are different. When a rambunctious 70s class of Bones proposed tapping the best and brightest of the new Yale women, the officers of the Russell Trust Association threatened to bar that class from the tomb and change the locks if they dared. They didn't. That sort of thing is what persuaded the person I am meeting with late tonight and a number of other persons to talk about what goes on inside. After all, isn't the core of the Bones group experience the betrayal of their loved one's secrets? Measure for measure. Tuesday, April 20th, Initiation Night, Tales of the Tomb and Deer Island When I return to New Haven on initiation night to stand in the shadows across the street from Bones in the hope of glimpsing an initiate enter, it is, thanks to my sources, who insist on anonymity, with a greater sense of just what it means for the initiate to be swallowed up by the tomb for the first time. The first initiate arrives shortly before 8 p.m., proceeds up the steps, and halts at attention in front of the great door. I don't see him ring a bell. I don't think he has to. They are expecting him. The door is open. I can't make out who or what is inside, but the initiate's reaction is unmistakable. He puts his hands up as if a gun has been pointed at him. He walks into the gloom and the door closes behind him. Earlier, according to my source, before the initiate was allowed to approach that door, he was led blindfolded to a bones house somewhere on Orange Street and conducted to the basement. There, two older bonesmen, dressed in skeleton suits, had him swear solemn oaths to keep secret whatever he was to experience in the tomb during the initiation rite and forever after. Now I am trying to piece together what I know about what is happening to that initiate tonight and, more generally, how his life will change now that he has been admitted inside. Tonight, he will die to the world and be born again into the Order, as he will thenceforth refer to it. The order is a world unto itself in which he will have a new name and 14 new blood brothers, also with new names. The death of the initiate will be as frightful as the liberal use of human skeletons and ritual psychology can make it. Whether it's accompanied by physical beatings or wrestlings or a plunge into a mud or dung pile, I've not been able to verify, but I'd give a marginally higher reliability rating to the mud pile plunge. Then it's into the coffin and off on a symbolic journey through the underworld to rebirth, which takes place at room number 322. There, the Order clothes the newborn knight in its own special garments, implying that henceforth he will tailor himself to the Order's mission, which is, if you take it at face value, to produce an alliance of good men. The Latin for good men is bony, of course, and each piece of bone's literature sports a Latin maxim making use of bony. Good men are rare, is the way one maxim translates. Of all societies, none is more glorious nor of greater strength than when good men of similar morals are joined in intimacy, proclaims another. The intimacy doesn't really begin to get going until the autobiographical sessions start in September, but first there are some tangible rewards. In the months that follow tonight's initiation, the born-again Bonesman will begin to experience the wonderful felicity of the Protestant ethic. Secular rewards just happen to accrue to the elect as external tokens of their inner blessedness. When I mentioned the $15,000 figure to writer Tom Powers, a member of a secret society called Elihu, he and members of the other secret societies professed incredulity. But the day after I spoke to him, I received this interesting communication from Powers. I have checked with a bone's penetration and am now inclined to think you've got the goods where the $15,000 is concerned. A sort of passive or negative confirmation. I put the question to him and he declined to comment in a tone of voice that might have been, but was not, derisory. Given an ideal opportunity to say that's bullshit, he did not. The interesting question now is what effect the $15,000 report is going to have on next tap day. The whole Bones mystique will take on a mercenary air, sort of like a television game show. If there's no 15000 the next lineup of tapees will be plenty pissed. I can hear the conversations now. Outgoing Bones members telling prospects there's one thing they've got to understand, really and truly, there is no 15000 While the prospects will be winking and nudging and saying, I understand... Ha ha, you've got to say that, but just between us. If Bones has got a cell in CIA, Powers concluded his letter, you could be in big trouble. Ah yes, the Bones cell in the Central Intelligence Agency. Powers had called my attention to a passage in Aaron Latham's novel, Orchids for Mother, in which the thinly veiled version of CIA master spy James Angleton recalls that the agency is New Haven all over again. Secret society'd be closer, like skull and bones. There are a lot of bonesmen around, aren't there? Asks a young CIA recruit. Indeed, says the master spy, with all the bones spooks, it's a regular haunted house. If you were a super-secret spy agency seeking to recruit the most trustworthy and able men for dangerous missionary work against the barbarian threat... Wouldn't you want someone whose life story, character, and secrets were already known to you? You'd certainly want to know if there were any sexual proclivities that might make the future spy open to temptation or blackmail. Now, I'm not saying the CIA has bugged the Bones Crypt, although who could rule it out with uncertainty. But couldn't the agency use old Bonesmen to recruit new ones? Or might they not have a trusted descendant of a Bonesman? Just one in each fifteen would be enough advised them on the suitability of the other 14 for initiation into postgraduate secrets. Consider the case of once gung-ho CIA bonesman William Sloan Coffin, who later became a leader of the anti-war movement. A descendant of an aptly named family with three generations of bonesmen, Coffin headed for the CIA not long after graduation from Bones. And the man Coffin tapped for Bones, William F. Buckley, Jr., was himself tapped by the CIA the following year. In the late summer following his initiation, right before he begins his senior year, the initiate is given a gift of greater value than any putative $15,000 recruitment bonus. His first visit to the private resort island owned and maintained by the Russell Trust Association in the St. Lawrence River. There, hidden among the thousand islands, the reborn initiate truly finds himself on an isle of the blessed. For there, on this place called Deer Island, there are assembled the active Bones alumni and their families, and there he gets a sense of how many powerful establishment institutions are run by wonderful, civilized, silver-haired Bonesmen eager to help the initiate's establishment dreams come true. He can also meet the wives of Bonesmen of all ages, and get a sense of what kind of woman is most acceptable and appropriate in Bones society, and perhaps even meet that most acceptable of all types of women, the daughter of a Bonesman. A reading of the lists of Bonesmen selected over the past 145 years suggests that like the secret society of another ethnic group, certain powerful families dominate, the Tafts, the Whitneys, the Thatchers, the Lords, for instance. You get the feeling there's also a lot of intermarriage among these Bones families. Year after year, there will be a Whitney Townsend Phelps in the same Bones class as a Phelps Townsend Whitney. It's only natural considering the way they grow up together with Bones picnics, Bones outings, and a whole quiet panoply of Bones social events outside the campus and the tomb, particularly on the island Of course, if the initiate has grown up in a Bones family and gone to picnics on the island all his life, the vision, the introduction to powerful people, the fine manners, the strong bonds, is less awesome. But to the non-hereditary slots in a Bones class of 15, the outsiders, frequently the football captain, the editor of the Yale Daily News, a brilliant scholar, a charismatic student politician, the island experience comes as a seductive revelation. These powerful people want me, my talents, my services, perhaps they even want my genes. Play along with their rules, and I can become one of them. They want me to become one of them. In fact, one could make a half-serious case that functionally, bones serves as a kind of ongoing informal establishment eugenics project, bringing vigorous new genes into the bloodlines of the Stimsonian elite. Perhaps that explains the origin of the sexual autobiography. It may have served some eugenic purpose in General Russell's vision, a sharing of birth control and self-control methods to minimize the chance of a good man and future steward of the ruling class being trapped into marriage by a fortune hunter or a working-class girl, the way the grand tour for an upper-class American youth always included an initiation into the secrets of Parisian courtesans so that once back home the young man wouldn't elope with the first girl who let him get past second base. However, certain of the more provincial Bones families do not welcome all genes into the pool. There is a story about two very well-known members of a Bones class who haven't spoken to each other for more than two decades. One of them was an early Jewish token member of Bones who began to date the sister of a fellow Bonesman. Apparently, the Christian family made its frosty reaction to this development very plain. The Christian Bonesman did not convince his Jewish blood brother he was entirely on his side in the matter. The dating stopped, and so did the speaking. It's an isolated incident, and one I wouldn't have brought up had I not been told of the Jew canoe incident, which happened relatively recently. There's a big book located just inside the main entrance to Bones. In it are some of the real secrets. Not the initiation rites or the grip, but reactions to, comments on, and mementos of certain things that went on in the tomb. Personal revelations, interpersonal encounters. The good stuff. I don't know if the tale of the broken-hearted, token gay and the rotting, pale story are in there, but they should be. I'm almost sure the mysterious Phil incident isn't there. According to one source, the very mention of the name Phil... Is enough to drive certain bonesmen up the wall. But the unfortunate Jew canoe incident is in that book. It seems that not too long ago, the boys in a recent Bones class were sitting around the tomb making some wisecracks that involved Jewish stereotypes. He drives a Cadillac, you know, the Jew canoe, things like that. Well, one Jewish token member that year happened to be present, but his blood brothers apparently didn't think he'd mind. It being only in fun and all that. Then it got more intense, as it can in groups when a wound is suddenly opened in one of their number. The Jewish member stalked out of the tomb, tears in his eyes, feeling betrayed by his brothers and thinking of resigning forthwith. But he didn't. He went back and inscribed a protest in the big book, at which time his brothers, suitably repentant, persuaded him not to abandon the tomb. Outsiders often do have trouble with the bones style of intimacy. There was, for instance, the story of one of the several token bisexuals and gays that Bones has tapped in recent years. He had the misfortune to develop, during the long Thursday and Sunday nights of shared intimacy, a deep affection for a member of his 15-man coven who declared himself irrevocably heterosexual. The intimacy of the tomb experience became heartbreaking and frustrating for the gay member. When the year came to a close and it came time to pick the next group of 15 from among the junior class, he announced that he was not going to tap another token gay and recommended against gay membership because he felt the experience was too intense to keep from becoming sexual. There's a kind of backhanded tribute to something genuine here. The Bones experience can be intense enough to work real transformations. Idle, preppy Prince Howes suddenly become serious students of society and themselves, as if acceptance into the tomb were a signal to leave the tavern and prepare to rule the land. Those embarrassed at introspection and afraid of trusting other men are given the mandate and confidence to do so. Why, said one source, do old men, seventy and over, travel thousands of miles for Bones' reunions? Why do they sing the songs with such gusto? Where else can you hear Archibald MacLeish take on Henry Luce in a soul-versus-capital debate with no holds barred? Bones survives because the old men who are successful need to convince themselves that not luck or wealth put them where they are, but raw talent, and talent that was recognized in their youth. Bones, because of its elitism, connects their past to their present. It is more sustaining for some than marriage. Certainly, the leaders that Bones has turned out are among the more humane and civilized of the old Yankee establishment. In addition to cold warriors, Viet warriors, and spies, there are as many or more missionaries, surgeons, writers, and great teachers as there are investment bankers. There is, in the past of Bones, at least an element of genuine missionary zeal for moral and not merely surplus value. It is now a century since the break-in pamphlet of the File and Claw crew announced the decline and fall of Skull and Bones, so it would be premature for me to announce the imminence of such an event, but almost everyone I spoke to at Yale thought that Bones was in headlong decline. There have been unprecedented resignations. There have been an increasing number of rejections, people Bones wants who don't want Bones, or who don't care enough to give up two nights a week for the kind of marathon encounter any E. graduate can put on in the bougainvillea room of the local Holiday Inn. Intimacy is cheap and zeal is rare these days. The word is out that Bones no longer gets the leaders of the class, but lately has taken on a more lackadaisical, hedonist, comfortable, even some said decadent group. And the reasons people give now for joining Bones are often more foreboding than the rejections. They talk about the security of a guaranteed job with one of the Bones-dominated investment banks or law firms. They talk about the contacts and the connections and maybe in private talk about the $15,000. Bones still has the power to corrupt, but doesn't have the power to inspire. The recent classes of Bones just do not, it seems, take themselves as seriously as General Russell or Henry Stimson or Blackford Oaks might want them to. The rotting paella story seems a perfect emblem of the decay. The story goes that a recent class of bones decided they would try to cook a meal in the basement kitchen of the tomb. It was vacation time, and the servants were not on call to do it for them. They produced a passable paella, but left the remains of the meal there in the basement kitchen, presuming that someone would be in to clean up after them. Nobody came in for two weeks. When they returned, they found the interior of the tomb smelling worse than if there had actually been dead bodies there. The servants refused to cook the meal for the next autobiographical session unless the bonesmen cleaned up the putrefying paella for themselves. The bonesmen went without food. I don't know who finally cleaned up, but there's a sense that like the paella, the original mission of bones has suffered from neglect and apathy and that the gene pool, like the stew, is becoming stagnant. I began to feel sorry for the old Bonesman. After a few days of asking around, I found the going too easy. Almost too many people were willing to spill their secrets. I had to call a halt. In the spirit of Bonesman Gifford Pinchot, godfather of the conservation movement, I'm protecting some of the last secrets. They're an endangered species. And besides, I like mumbo-jumbo. It's strange. I didn't exactly set out to write an expose of skull and bones but neither did I think I'd end up with an elegy. That concludes this episode of the Cursed Land podcast. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you all enjoyed. As always, if you've got a story you'd like to hear on the show, you're welcome to send those suggestions to feedback at curse.land. Until next time, I'll talk to y'all later.